0: Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. do very much appreciate it. My wife and I have enjoyed fellowship with you today. And thank you for uh, your anticipation of your prayers for us in Llanelli. As Tony said, we meet uh, at least Sunday mornings. we we'll have been meeting in a school hall, uh, which has been great until, I think, it was a year ago last March. We had to stop, and we've been online ever since. But we're not discouraged. The Lord in his goodness has led us into contact with lots of new people online, and we're very thankful to him for that, but we would appreciate your prayers as we've been praying for you today. Well, turn with me back to that passage, remarkable passage, the last chapter of John's gospel, chapter 21, and the final incident in this wonderful gospel of John. If you were here this morning, I was making the observation that when it comes to the application of the news that is central and absolutely at the heart of authentic Christian belief. The news of the resurrection, news that the New Testament presents to us sometimes in high, elevated, and thrilling terms regarding the victory of Jesus Christ by his death on the cross over sin, death, and hell. The hope of the energy, the power to now live For Christ, as a Christian, is rooted in the same power that raised him from the dead, now raises us to newness of life. The New Testament speaks in so many different ways and elevated ways about the glory and the wonder of our Saviour's resurrection from the dead. But when we first read of it in the Gospel accounts, what we see is not the arrival of a theological statement, though it clearly is that. Neither is it even a declaration of praise and triumph, which the resurrection most certainly is. Instead, we see it coming tenderly, profoundly, and gently to struggling, broken human beings. First, to Mary Magdalene, utterly overwhelmed in grief and totally bewildered at the loss, apparent loss, of Jesus' body. The news of the resurrection in the person of Christ comes and fills her with deep joy. And as we saw this morning in the character of Thomas, in the grip of very real doubt And how difficult that must have been for that man. And his feelings of isolation amongst the other disciples. The news of the resurrection comes in the person of Christ. Deliver him from all of that. And bring him great joy. The two on the road to Emmaus. Disillusioned. With the sense that everything had started out so well in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then suddenly, it's as if the legs have been cut from under the whole thing. And it had all come crushing down. We hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And there they are in their confusion and a feeling of great disillusionment. With as the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, their faces downcast. The news of the resurrection comes in the person of Jesus to encourage and bless. And when their eyes are open, they return to Jerusalem in great speed. Probably the fastest 10K ever ever run in the ancient world to share the news, full of joy and hope. Well, of course, there is one other incident. It's ours this evening, which is the restoration of Peter. It is a highly significant moment. And one of the fascinating things about John's gospel which, as you're probably aware, was written, we believe, later than the other three Gospels, and certainly is more reflective and theological in its content. Amongst the high theology, glorious theology of John's Gospel, the whole thing ends in this most tender moment, as the news and the the resurrection, the person of Christ, Restores Peter from deep shame, profound regret, and very real sense of guilt. Now, the character of Peter is fairly well known. Superficially, he appeared to be a very simple character, often bold. It appears fearless when others were fearful, certainly brash, and very impulsive and sometimes demanding. Let's not forget, it's Peter who drew drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane to defend the Lord Jesus when they came to take him with violence. Of course, we read in the scriptures that he actually cut off the ear of one of those who were coming to arrest Jesus. And Jesus has to heal and restore that man's ear. I think cutting off someone's ear is quite difficult, isn't it? Personally, in my thinking, I like to think that Peter was actually trying to take his head off and the guy ducked. It gives us an indicator of this man is a man who is very passionate and very direct. He's a no-nonsense fisherman. If you know anything about fishing, fishermen are by and large pretty no-nonsense people because it's either fish in the net or there are not. And Peter emerges as a clear leader amongst the disciples and he is a godly man. His heart is set on following Jesus Christ with all of his energy. There is a very powerful moment in the life and ministry of our Lord when a young man comes to see him, a young man of great influence and great wealth. And everything seems to be so full of promise that this young man is going to become a great follower of Jesus. But it transpires that when our Lord challenges him, he turns away. And at which point it is Peter who says to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. That's Peter. And we track his life and ministry. We understand that he is a man who really understands who Jesus is. There was a crucial moment at a place called Caesarea Philippi when our Lord turned to the disciples and said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they began to recount the things that people were saying about Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or or, or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. To which our Lord points to him and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter, this brash, dynamic, individual, godly man who understands who Jesus is, also enters into unique experiences of blessing in the person of Christ. There was a day when Jesus takes Peter And James and John, his brother, and he takes them up a high mountain. And we read in Matthew 17 that Jesus was transfigured before them. They saw Christ in something of his heavenly glory. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. It was a profound moment. John, as he writes his gospel, said, we beheld his glory, and Peter was there. So this godly man who understands who Jesus is and is uniquely blessed is the character who lies before us this evening. And central to what we're looking at this evening is the awareness that because of his boldness, there were many, many times when Peter... Suffered from foot-in-mouth syndrome. There in the upper room. John 13. That wonderful moment of the intimacy of fellowship and friendship. Between Jesus and his disciples. Those who have been closest to him. Through thick and thin for three years. And Peter hears Jesus speaking of going away. That was deeply unsettling. Lord. Where are you going? Where you're going, replies Jesus, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter will not, our Lord's response will not satisfy Peter. And so he pushes the issue home. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And that's the moment. When Jesus answers him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the cock shall not crow until you have denied me three times. And we know that's what happened. And it was devastating for this man. In Luke 22, we read, that while Jesus was being interrogated Individuals came to see Peter. Surely this fellow also is with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What a moment. A moment of absolute personal devastation. As Peter comes face to face with who he really is. And we're told that in that moment when our Lord looked at Peter. That Peter remembered the word of the Lord. That before the cock crows you will deny me three times. And this bold, brash leader of men. Went out. And Luke simply says. Wept bitterly I'm sure Peter on that occasion wept for his Lord he wept at his own foolishness he wept at his failure and inability to be the man he wanted to be now as we reflect on the life of Peter we all know what it is to fail Christ we may not talk much about this But in reality, there's probably not one of us here this evening who has not promised great things for Christ. And in the time of testing as it was for Peter, we have come up short. That moment when we are genuine with conviction and promise, maybe at the end of a moving service or something like that, but when the emotion has gone And the reality of the situation draws near. We identify with Peter. And maybe we even know what it is to weep bitterly at the memory of shame as we have failed Christ. Facing up to this is painful. And that's what this passage is about tonight. It is deeply painful for Peter. And yet this passage shows us it ultimately is gloriously liberating. Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. And what a comfort that is for you tonight and for me. Maybe tonight you're struggling with a sense of shame. A sense of bitter disappointment. That the awareness that you have failed to be the woman or the man that you should be before God. And not only is that sense of shame before God, it's a sense of shame within yourself. Well, what comfort there are in those words. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. If we're to understand this last chapter of John, we actually have to go back a bit further and jump to another gospel. It's Luke's gospel, where we actually see the moment when Peter was first called to follow Jesus. It was another fishing expedition. It was another night fishing expedition and as it was in this occasion which we're looking at here tonight at the end of John's Gospel. The very first time Peter meets Jesus, it was a night's fishing where they hadn't caught anything. And then the stranger on the shore, for that is who Jesus appears to them at that point, shouts out, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. It is an invitation to believe the response of these fishermen is what we would expect it to be to the advice from a carpenter master we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything and then it comes but because you say so i will let down the nets because you say so At the calling of peter peter has by god 's grace, begun to identify things in the one who stands on the shore, telling him to once again put his net down, and this step of faith is wonderfully and gloriously answered from heaven, the catch so much fish in that single moment that the nets begin to break, and the effect on Simon Peter is remarkable. Luke simply records that when he saw this, he doesn't say to himself. We've hit the big time. We're going to make so much money from this fish. Thank you ever so much. No, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You know, friends, that is always what really happens when we really see who Jesus is. The light shows up the darkness. The glory our failures. Peter's first calling is rooted in Christ's understanding and comfort. For in response to Peter's acknowledgement of his sins, Jesus says these wonderful and remarkable words Don't be afraid. This is always the voice of heaven to us when we are genuinely aware of our sinfulness before God. There is hope. There is comfort. There is more grace in Christ than sin in us. And so the voice from heaven to us in our sense of conviction of our own sin is don't be afraid. Here is one who can not only cause fish suddenly to be in the net. But here is one who ultimately will take on the power of sin and death and hell and destroy it all in his own death and so he has authority and power to say to us in our distresses don't be afraid and in that moment Jesus commissions Peter from now on you will catch men now the parallel between his first calling and these closing chapters of John's gospel is striking we're three years on now three remarkable years Peter so bold for Christ in the upper room is now as we come to this chapter a public failure. A man whose life is almost been defined by hypocrisy and shame. Where does he go from here? What does it mean for that initial commissioning? From now on you will catch Men, does that still stand anymore? Do those words, do not be afraid, still apply to Peter? Where is Peter now, having messed up so spectacularly? We actually didn't read this bit. If we go back a little bit earlier... You see what happens in the incident, which we did read about here at the end of John's Gospel, is again, they have been fishing all night. And the stranger on the shore says to them, put out your nets again. It's identical to Peter's own first calling. And the same thing happens again, the net is fit to bursting. But in verses seven to 11, we read that there in the boat, when Simon Peter hears the cry, This is no stranger, this is the Lord, this is Jesus our master. He put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Here is Simon, desperate now to somehow find traction in his relationship with Christ, in the midst of his shame. And when the request comes from Jesus to bring some fish for the barbecue he was assembling on on the seashore, it's Simon Peter who goes up and drags the net to land. And it's full of large fish. And John very strategically tells us that there were 153 fish. I've had the privilege of eating one of those fish out of the Sea of Galilee. Probably about a pound each. Here is a net with approximately 153 pounds of wet fish. And this man single handedly manhandles the net ashore. He is so desperate to smooth things over and make everything all right. And in that is perhaps the reminder of how often we try to do something similar when we've messed up with Christ. I must try harder, I must be better. I must make more effort. I must be more committed to church. I must be more committed to to giving and serving and, and somehow put right the years in which I've wandered. But in this passage, we see that such an approach is actually not at all how God works with us when we're in the grip of shame and regret and the memories of failure. Only one thing will cure Peter, a fresh encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, with his love and his grace and his compassion. Now, Peter could have, sorry, Jesus could have rebuked Peter. And we would, wouldn't we? In my hour of need, you said you would be there. And you lied your way away from me. But gloriously, as this passage shows us, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. Instead, his response is one of compassion, forgiveness, and it is so gloriously constructive. There's a hymn that I know sometimes you have sung here over the years. It includes these words, O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek. And then it says this, To those who fall, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. And so as the passage unfolds, these three spectacular denials, which in many ways should have hallmarked Peter's life for the rest of his life, are responded to by the Lord Jesus with three questions, three relational questions, do you love me? And then three commands. There is a wonderful picture that emerges. I was never any good at maths, I'm useless now still. But I love this arithmetic. Three catastrophic denials, plus three questions from Jesus. And three glorious recommissionings. Now, when Jesus turns amidst all the disciples to speak to Peter, it is a dramatic moment. Three times in this passage, in verses 15, 16, and 17, we read, Simon, son of John. Jesus has dropped the name that he gave to Peter at Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. And it's in that moment, Jesus gave Peter the name Peter. Before that, he was always known as Simon, son of John. But now in this moment, when Jesus first speaks to him, he reverts back, if you like, to his pre-conversion name. You can imagine the other disciples thinking, here we go. Backing away, leaving Peter for Jesus to deal with him. Peter is drenched in self-awareness and shame. And in his distress, he has discovered more of who he really is. But now he's about to discover more of who Jesus really is. And so our Lord initiates his restoration. He will not leave his servant crushed in the depths of self-despair. We sang it tonight in one of the hymns, isn't it, about a love that reaches deeper than the depths of self-despair. Here is the power of the resurrection. Here is the hope and the glory and the wonder of the news that Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and hell. He tenderly pursues Peter as he initiates restoration. There is something awkward here. It is Christ who pursues Peter. As much as Peter wants to smooth it over, it is Jesus who pursues him. And it is awkward, and it is difficult, and it is painful, but it is necessary. And there is something very, very wonderful here. Here is the comfort that no matter where the treachery of our own hearts may take us as God's people, Christ will always pursue his children. That is the comfort we have. That does not excuse our treachery, our backsliding. It does not give us license for these things at all. But in the depths of self despair, as Peter appears to have experienced by his bitter weeping, it brings us comfort. Now, at the same time, Peter must respond to what Jesus is saying. And so our Lord speaks to him, but very precisely. Here is perfect pastoral surgery. Our Lord knows that the the real issue with Peter lies in his heart, the broken promise. The inflated sense of personal ability, all of those things reside in Peter's heart. And so Jesus simply says this, do you love me? It is a profound question, isn't it? And it's deeply relational. He doesn't say to Peter, do you know what you've done? He didn't need to do that. Peter knew what he had done. It's not in that question, now Peter, what are you going to do to put this right? What are you willing to do for me? The question is this, do you love me? In this question, Jesus is being profoundly constructive. You know, when we really let God down, and our sense of shame and guilt and our backsliding can be very acute. We are often harder on ourselves than Christ is with us. He is tender. He is gentle. His intention is to restore. 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 simply says, If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. There is a power that is greater than your sense of shame and guilt. Our sense of regret and failure. And that power is the power of God's compassion and love. You see what this incident shows us. This is all about Christ's work in Peter. And not about Peter's work. Peter doesn't have to somehow earn his way back into Christ's favor. He doesn't have to lay down a string of new promises to somehow put things right. He doesn't have to be there racked in, in hours and hours of sobbing agonies to somehow move the heart of Christ towards him. No, the heart of Christ is filled with compassion towards him. It's just like in the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son. While he was a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. Friends, this is the power of the resurrection. The power to transform, the power to make new. And in this we begin to see, if we widen the lens of this story to taking the whole of the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, we begin to realize that this experience that Christ is putting Peter through becomes critical to his future service. And friends, here lies a mystery. In the providences of God. That even Peter's rebellion. His his denials. his, His sorrowing over his sin. His weeping bitterly. His sense of awkwardness and shame now as Christ confronts him. All of this. In God's economy and in God's providence. Has been purposed to bring Peter to the place where Jesus wants him to be. If Peter will be useful to Christ, he must be a man who knows his own destructive heart and the glory of Christ's compassion and love for him as a sinner. I can't help thinking if there was ever one chap who on the day of Pentecost, because of these three denials, they should have just given a broom to and said, look, there's going to be a load of people here. There's going to be a lot of fuss. At the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of litter. You you push that broom around at the end and just clean up. I think Peter would have jumped at it. Here's an opportunity for me to be useful after I've messed up. I'm willing to do it. But who in God's providence does the Holy Spirit use on the day of Pentecost to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ? It's Peter, the man who was broken by his own sense of shame and guilt and experiences the liberating, transforming power of the resurrection. Sometimes Christ will take his servants to dark places that they might drink deeply of his grace and mercy now the Lord Jesus is so tender with Peter and he is tender with us and that in some ways rebukes the way we often are with one another when we hear of one who has wandered away or or somehow has turned to the left or to the right tragically it's so easy for us isn't it to point the finger to question the character even to despise them But Jesus is persevering and tender. I quoted these words to you this morning from Isaiah 42 about Jesus. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, a useless thing, he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Are you that bruised reed tonight? Are you that smouldering wick? Be encouraged. In the hands of Jesus Christ, you will not be broken. And you will not be snuffed out. This is the heart of God towards all who are conscious of their sins and who look to Jesus Christ. And so the question is asked, do you love me? And I ask you it tonight. Do you love Jesus Christ? And do you love him from your heart? And you might be saying to yourself right now, well, I really don't know how to answer that question. I'm so afraid of saying something that I don't even know is really true. How do I know that I love Christ? Oh, wonderfully, Jesus shows Peter the way. He will not abandon him. There is no such thing as useless in God's hands. And in the light of everything Paul has to say to us in 2 Corinthians, the reality is God uses uselessness in extraordinary ways in his kingdoms and in the work of his gospel in the world. God always has plans for his children. He has things for us to do. And so to Peter the hypocrite, in response to those three times asked questions, which are in response to his three times denials, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter answers the best he can. But each time Jesus says something profound, he recommissions him. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. These are extraordinary statements. In his first calling, it is, Leave your nets, for no longer you will fi- look for fish, but you will be a fisher of men. But now, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, the one who died on the cross for his children and his people, says about his lambs, My sheep, my lambs, to this old hypocrite of a fisherman, You. Feed them. You take care of them. Oh, if ever there is a man who knows how to take care of wandering sheep, it's Peter. If ever there's going to be a man who knows how to feed the lamb who is in need, it's Peter. How do you know if you love Christ from your heart? There is the desire to serve him. The great hallmark of true spiritual restoration is the hunger and desire for to serve Christ from the heart joyfully and willingly. One of the things I've noticed over years in pastoral ministry is that it is often those who have been most backslidden and in God's grace have been restored who then become most zealous for Christ. It's a hallmark of authentic and genuine restoration. Jesus tells us us plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. True Christian service never comes simply from opportunity or need or duty. It comes from loving Christ. And oh, how Peter loves Christ. And Peter loves Christ because he's experienced the greater love. Of Christ's love for him. This experience of collapse and restoration. Shows us that. All that Peter does now. Will be all about Jesus. And you know you you go away tonight. Read the early parts of the book of Acts. You'll see it there. When Peter is in action for the Lord Jesus. Jesus. There on the day of Pentecost, he speaks not about himself. Not about the three years, the privileged position that he had, all his experiences. He could have kept them there for hours and hours and hours. No, he preaches Jesus Christ. He preaches Christ with passion. He preaches Christ with such energy and empowering of the Holy Spirit that is preaching, it appears, was drowned out by those cries. What must we do to be saved? How do we come to know this Jesus? You go on into the third chapter of Acts. You know, I love this moment. It's so ordinary and yet so extraordinary. We're told simply in Acts 3 that uh, Peter and John are walking along and they see a man who's been crippled from birth and he's begging in a well known spot in Jerusalem. It seems he was well known to many, many people and he's asking for money. And as they're walking along, Peter says, Look at us. And you know, if we really understand what's happened in Peter's life, we tremble. Oh, Peter, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Are you going to blow it now? Look at us. The man gave them his attention expecting to get something from them of course he got a lot more than he ever bargained for because Peter says to him silver or gold I do not have but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk it's not about me it's not about who I am It's not about my experiences or my advice or anything like that. No, from now on, Peter's life is dedicated to be one who points to Jesus Christ. And what a glorious thing that is. Friends, when we have been broken by our own failure and sense of shame and restored by the overwhelming compassion and perseverance Of Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead. It's then that we get it. It's not about us. But it's all about him. All about him. So as we conclude here this evening. We must not miss the significance of this account. The power of the resurrection. Is power to restore. To rebuild. Reconstruct perfectly it's as if on that seashore our lord is so perfectly restoring peter that there is not one tiny scrap of shame left in the sand after he is finished completely forgiven perfectly liberated Gloriously free. So, how about you? What are you carrying? What shame? What guilt? Come to Jesus Christ. Only Him. For only He has been raised from the dead. And only he has the intensity of compassion towards you that you need. And only he can do helpless sinners good. John, for all of his glorious theology, for all the high truths he tells us about Jesus, leaves us with this account ringing in our ears The tender pastoral care of Christ for broken followers of Jesus. Honestly now tonight, with all my heart, I have to say to you, you do not need to carry your shame anymore. Come to Jesus Christ. Lay your hypocrisy at his feet. Your failure, put it in his hands. Confess your guilt and shame to Christ today. You are not more guilty than Peter was. And experience his love. And his forgiveness. Do you love him?